0: Go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 is almost uh, right in the middle of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, we are in a Christmas series that we are calling Gifts Under the Tree. And um, obviously Christmas is a season of giving and receiving of gifts. And it's all because of the gift that God has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, when you think about it, Jesus' birth is a gift. It's the greatest of gifts. And then with Jesus' birth comes all these other gifts. And so in this series, uh, Gifts Under the Tree, we're, we're looking at some of those different gifts. Last Sunday, I, I, I talked about the gift of hope that we have as, as Christ followers. And then today I want to talk about, I want us to consider the gift of joy. You know, the word advent is a, is a Latin word and it just simply means arrival. It, it means coming and so Advent is that season of the year where we, we take some time to reflect on the first coming of Jesus, uh, his birth, when he, when he came as a servant 2,000 years ago. And, um, and, and, so, and so that's a big part of what Advent really is, those four Sundays leading up to Christmas day, the, the day of the, of the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's also the season of the year where we anticipate and long for uh, the the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus is not coming as a servant this time, he'll be coming as king. And so Advent is really a season of longing. It's a season of expectation. It's a season of preparation. Uh, as we realize that we live in the in-between, we we live in the in-between of those comings, the first and second coming. And so then the question becomes, how do we live in the in-between, right? Like how are we supposed to live as we eagerly await the coming of Jesus in his second coming well we we live with hope as I talked about last week and uh and then we live with joy so that's what we're going to talk about today now I want to read to you one of the I think one of the greatest passages in all of scripture that you may have never even read it's Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 11 and I'm going to ask if you're willing and able would you please stand for the reading of God's word today the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and, and, and wine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord and they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the, of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people's. And all who see them shall acknowledge them and, they, and they, that they are an offspring of the, of the Lord has blessed. And so I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with his, with his garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom really decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So, do you have joy, church? Do you have joy? Are you a joyful person? Every now and then, somebody will say to me, Scott, I think I have the gift of joy. And sometimes I just want to say, well, you need to memo your face, you know? Um, You need to let your face know that. Um, You know, following Jesus is really all about joy. How joyful are you? You know, really joy is the aroma of the church, isn't isn't it? And I think all of us have been a part of other churches. Uh, Maybe we visited another church that maybe was lacking in joy. I, I, I heard about I heard about this lady who was worshiping in this church, and you know it was just kind of a cold church, and people were just kind of distant from each other, and and um, you know just 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 kind of uh, not 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 very warm or friendly, and 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 so this lady in the middle of the service, God was just speaking to her heart and stirring her, and she just kind of blurted out right in the middle of the service, "Praise the Lord!" And uh, the ushers descended on her like a SWAT team around a bank robber, and. Uh, They're like, lady, what are you doing? You can't just burst out in the middle of the service. What are you doing? She said, well, I can't help it. I'm so full of the joy of the Lord. And the head usher looked at her and said, well, you didn't get that here. (laughs) See, joy is really what the church is all about. Joy is what the Christmas season is really all about. You know, we think about those angels that, you know, that, that appeared in the, in the gospel stories about the birth of Jesus. And they said, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We, we sing the Christmas carol, joy to the world, the Lord has come, which is really a hymn about the second coming of Christ. Did you know that? That hymn is about his second coming, not his first coming, but we sing it in the season of his first coming uh, uh, about the birth of Jesus. So, so we, we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. Repeat the sounding joy, right? We think about this Christmas season. It's full of Christmas decorations. It's full of lights and candles and Christmas gifts and Christmas cards. And we, we're going to go to a Christmas party. We're, um, you know, we're going to have a Christmas gathering. We, we do all of these things. And what's, what's, what's the flavor of all of that? Joy. Joy unspeakable. That's that's really what it's all about. Christmas is joyous. And you know what? We need the joy of Christmas. We really need it. Because life is hard, is it not? Life is hard and life is heavy. Life is really an unending quest. It's It's a desperate quest in many respects. For what? For joy. That's what it's about. And see, joy means having something in you that strengthens you. It's having something inside of you that sustains you, that kind of holds you together when things aren't going great. And, uh, and so what we do is we find ourselves running hard looking for joy in this world. And we look for it in all the wrong places. Sometimes we, we run hard after it in our... You know, in our sports, or we run hard after trying to excel at school, or we're, we're, we're running hard after joy trying to build up our bank accounts. Or we're, we're pursuing hard after joy being a success at work, or, you know, working at marriage and family and all of that. And sometimes we get to the end of the run and we're like, I don't know if I've ever had it. I don't know if I've ever even had joy. Because the reality is the world can't give it. The world can't give lasting joy. That's why our running hard ends up so many times fruitless and empty. What, what, what is joy? Joy is really a, it's an inner delight that's unmoved by external circumstances. That's what joy is. It's an inner delight unmoved by external circumstances. That's why you can have cancer and have joy. That, that's why you can, I mean, You could be at the graveside of your kid and have joy. You see, joy is the the awareness, the gladness of the presence of God and the goodness of God that's near you. It's just being aware of that. That, That's that's really what joy is. And, And so joy is really different from happiness because happiness is superficial. Happiness is totally dependent on circumstances, you can't be happy at the graveside of your kid. You know why? Because you're sobbing. You're crushed. You're broken. Right? You're crying out. But you can't have joy, right? You can't have joy. You can have the awareness of the presence of God, the comfort of God, where you even say, in the midst of desperate sorrow, "It is well with my soul." That's why. That's why Ellie Weisel, when you know he saw Christians marching at Auschwitz. They were singing songs of praise to God on their way to the gas chambers. Their hearts were filled with joy. That was the one thing the Nazis could not take from them was that inner fortification of joy that only comes from God that they had even in the face of death. Now, where where does joy come from? Well, I wanna show you right from Isaiah chapter 61. I wanna show you just three things about joy, right? From, from this passage that we read, I want to show you the basis of joy, really the ground of it, the source of it. Uh, then I want to talk about the byproduct of joy, the outflow of it, if you will. And then I want to bottom line joy for all of us today as we kind of think about this tremendous gift um, from our Savior. So let's think about the birth, or not, not, not the birth, but the basis of joy. What, what is our basis for joy? What's our ground for it? Like where does our joy come from? Well, it comes from this, that Jesus has come. That Jesus has come in the flesh. He is our redeemer. He is our restorer. And he is our joy giver. And so Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You think about this. We couldn't save ourselves, so Jesus came to save us. We couldn't right our wrongs, so Jesus came to right every wrong. You know, we couldn't fulfill the law perfectly, so he came to do it for us perfectly. And that's exactly what he did. So Jesus' coming changes everything, it's a game changer. So the outflow of Jesus' birth, his life and death and resurrection, the outflow of all of that is joy for you and for me. He restores our life, he restores our joy. Now I think, uh, this is just my theory, okay? So this is just a theory, but I think Isaiah 61, what we just read, is probably Jesus' favorite passage of scripture. I really do. I'll tell you why, he, he, he goes to Nazareth, he's the guest speaker at the synagogue, at, uh, at, at uh, the first synagogue of uh, the Nazarene there in, in Nazareth, and so he's speaking to a packed house, and he requests the Isaiah scroll, and he unrolls the scroll, and he stands up in front of everybody, and he reads at least verses one and two, that's what he reads to him, he says, he, he stands up and he reads, the Spirit of the Lord the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news of great joy that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison up to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He closes, he reads that, he closes the scroll, drops the microphone and immediately walks out, and the crowd is absolutely stunned, because what he says is this, today, that scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And I mean, there was a hush over that capacity crowd that day. Now, church, there are a lot of passages in scripture where, you know, you're reading through the Old Testament, you're thinking, that look, that sounds like Jesus, like like that passage in the Old Testament, that's kind of it's, it may be a prophecy of Jesus. It sounds like it's, it's really talking about Jesus. So then you go to the commentaries. And so some of the Bible commentators are kind of debating each other saying, well, it looks like it is, but it may not be. And so they're in this, you know, they're in this debate. But church, there is no doubt about Isaiah 61. Because Jesus reads Isaiah 61 and says, this thing is about me. This is what I came to do. This is my mission and that's why I think Jesus loved it. I think it was why he preached his first sermon from it because it so powerfully conveys why he came. It so powerfully communicates his, his mission. And so, and so he kind of closes it out and says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what is that? What does he mean by that? The year of the Lord's favor. Well, what he's talking about is he's talking about the year of jubilee. Now, jubilee is a great word because it's so closely um, connected to the word joy. So you could almost use them synonymously there. But, but, um, and so he's really just specifically talking about the year of jubilee. Now, what was the year of jubilee? Well, you remember in Leviticus, um, you know, God's law established the practice of the Sabbath day. So what you would do is you would take one day off every seven days and you would rest from your labor You wouldn't work and so this was god's gift to his people he said i want you to observe sabbath i want you to rest and i want you to refill and this is god's you know my gift to you and i want you to always think about as you observe sabbath that one day heaven is coming and you're going to have an eternal rest from all of your labors that's sabbath but there's also the sabbath year so, what they would do is, you know, God mandated that they would take one year off out of every seven years. And what they would do in the Sabbath year was they wouldn't plant. They wouldn't harvest. So you had to be very prudent. You had to kind of plan out for that seventh year and and set aside some grain, set aside some crops, you know, for that year so that you would have enough to make it because because the ground needed to rest. The ground needed to, to lie fallow. Now, there were some other things that they would do in that Sabbath year. They would reconcile relationships in that seventh year. So if you were alienated from a family member or a friend, you know, relationships were to get reconciled. And and then not only that, but you were to forgive all of your debts or, you know, the money that people owed to you. You were to cancel those debts in the Sabbath year, in that seventh year. And then you were also to set your indentured servants free in that seventh year. So if you owed someone money and you couldn't pay them back, what you would do, it was customary, you would work for them. You would be their servant until you got that debt paid off, then you were free to go. But in the seventh year, even if you didn't have that debt paid off, you were mandated by the Mosaic Law to release and free and cancel those debts, those you know those indentured servants. That's pretty cool, especially if you owe the debt. Now, the year of the year of Jubilee is this. Every seven years, times seven, and that would bring us to the fiftieth year, would be the year of Jubilee. And what you would do in the year of Jubilee, you would reconcile relationships, you would cancel debts, you would, you know, you would uh, release your indentured servants, and, and, and then and then you would do something else all land would, re, would be returned to its original owner. Now that's interesting because God's plan was to keep the allotments of territories within the families that he, he prescribed. And so, so that was the year of Jubilee. It was a great year. Now, here's the interesting thing in some of the commentaries that I, that I read about this. Bible scholars are not even sure that the people of Israel ever even practiced year of Jubilee, They're not even sure that they even practiced it because there's really no evidence in the Old Testament that they did. Now, it was mandated by the law of Moses that they do it, but there's no real evidence that anybody ever actually did it, which makes what Jesus is saying even more powerful because what Jesus is saying in front of that synagogue crowd that day is, I have come to bring the year of Jubilee. That is why I've come. I have come uh, to bring spiritual, economic, social, and psychological wholeness. That's my mission. That's what I've come to do. The shalom of God is going to be restored. Now, you read through the Gospels, and what did, what did Jesus do? He brought healing. He brought peace. He brought restoration. He brought reconciliation, didn't he? Everywhere he went. That's, that was the outflow of his life and ministry. I mean, there was, there was the leper. you remember the leper? And, and lepers had this skin disease that banished them from the temple. They couldn't go and worship at the temple or the tabernacle. They were, they were alienated from, from their families and their friends. They, they really couldn't work. They had to live on the outskirts of town, basically by themselves. No one ever touched them. And so this leper goes up to Jesus and says, "You know, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? Jesus not only heals him, but Jesus touches him. The first time he'd been touched in years, church. What was Jesus doing? He didn't have to touch him. Jesus was not just healing him physically, he was healing him spiritually and emotionally as well by telling him that he is loved by God. Could you imagine the joy that day? As, his, as this leper's life was given back to him. Think, think about the story of the woman, you know, with, you know who, who had been bleeding for years. She too was ceremonially unclean. She, she was not allowed to worship at the temple. No one was allowed to touch her or they, they would be unclean as well. And so she had this condition for years and years and years. And she's thinking, God is angry at me. God has cursed me. God has banished me. But, but she sees something different about Jesus. And she, she gets so close to him. There's a crowd of people. She gets so close to him. She's thinking to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. And you know what she does? That's exactly what she does. She touches the hem of his garment and instantly she's healed. Instantly she's restored. She's made whole. And not just physically, but spiritually as well. Can you imagine the joy? She got life and restoration I think about the Garrison demoniac that we we talked about last spring in in, in the Gospel of Mark. I I think about his story. He lived among the tombs. He self-harmed. He was a threat to others. That's why they many times they had to bind him with chains. And he was possessed by demons. He there were times he had so much strength he could break out of the chains. And we, you know, we would call him schizophrenic today. He was insane. He was out of his out of his right mind, and and, and so he's just absolutely destructive, living living by himself. And and uh, he encounters uh, Jesus Christ, who heals him and restores him. And and the scripture says, you know, the people of that village found him clothed and in his right mind. And what happens is he becomes he becomes a messenger of the joy of the gospel as his life has been completely restored. Can you, can you imagine the joy that he felt as he received wholeness and healing from our great God? I, I think about the woman at the well. I, I, I think about the story of Jesus and this Samaritan woman and it's just her and Jesus and they're having this conversation and um, he recounts to her everything she ever did. I mean, can you imagine that? imagine having that conversation and so you know he says to her yeah you know you're right you're not married the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband in fact you've had you know you've had five husbands and I'm sure that's not all of her fault in that way but I do know this that after a few minutes hanging with Jesus her life is transformed she has changed and then what happens? She goes back into, into her, her community and she becomes a herald of the joy of Jesus. So that so many in the, in the village, so many in that community came to believe in Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's restoring people, church. Everywhere he goes, he's setting people free. Church, Dr. Phil can't do that. You know, the self-help section at Barnes and Noble can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. So that's what he came to do. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. This is the basis of our joy. He brings healing and wholeness and restoration to us. Let me show you verse three. Notice, notice what uh, uh, Isaiah says. He says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit you see you you see what you see what this this Messiah does you see what he brings he brings a beautiful headdress instead of ashes you know the people in in biblical days what they would do is they would take a pot of ashes and I'm not making this up church they would literally dump it on their heads and they would walk around because their life was so broken. They were so filled with grief and sorrow at whatever circumstances were going on in their life that they were like, I give up, I can't, my life is gone. And they wear ashes on their head. And what, what Jesus is saying is, I've come to bring a beautiful headdress and to take those ashes away. That's what I've come to do. I've come to restore the joy. So instead of mourning, I bring a headdress of joy, you know I was reading about this this plant in alaska it's it's uh it 's called fireweed and uh, in alaska they they use it um, uh in different ways, and so um they use it for medicinal purposes so it can cure a stomach ache um, it can cure eczema they say uh, i 'm going to try it for baldness I'll, i don't know we'll see see how that goes <laughs> um, But you know what's interesting about this fireweed is it's the very first, it's the very first plant that blooms after there's a fire in Alaska. It's the very first one. Pops up right on the black soil and you just see it. And it reminds us of the beauty for ashes that Jesus brings. Church, I I don't know what you're carrying today, but I know that Jesus has come And I know he knows what you're carrying. He knows your grief and he knows your sorrow. And he loves you and he's with you. And he came to take away that mourning and to give you joy. That's what he came to do. He didn't come to condemn you, he loves you. And that's the basis of our joy. Well, what's the byproduct of joy? Well, we are to spread it. We are to spread it. You know, the interesting thing about joy, when you enjoy something, you got to tell somebody, right? Like when you read a book that you really like, or you you got a new show on Netflix that you really like, or you eat at a new restaurant, what's the first thing you got to do? You got to tell somebody. And in telling someone about what you've enjoyed, somehow, some way, that makes the joy complete you don't just experience something joyful and then just hold on to it, right? It, what, what makes it complete is, is you tell somebody else about it. And, and so and so when you come to know the joy of Jesus, you're transformed by it. You, you want to tell someone else about it because it is it is so life-changing. And so in this way, the byproduct of joy is mission. In other words, what God has done is he has sent his son and his son invites us into his mission of of being joy spreaders, and that's what we're called to be, and that's what we are called to do. We become the bringers of joy. Let let me show you this in verse 4. It's a very interesting verse right in the middle of Isaiah 61. He says this, "'They shall build up the ancient ruins.'" and they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, first of all, who is they that he's talking about? I mean, that was my first question. Who, who are these people? Well, very clearly, it's the ones he set free. It's, the, it's those who are poor. It's those who've been restored. It's those who've been redeemed. It's, it's all of us. They're the ones who are going to build up the ancient ruins and and raise up the former devastations. That's what he's talking about. Now, th- th- then my other question was, well, why are there ancient ruins? I mean, what happened to this place? Why are there devastations? Well, I think specifically what, what, what the prophet Isaiah is speaking to is the destruction of Jerusalem and, and you know, he's talking to the exiles and he's, and he's making a promise that Jerusalem is gonna be rebuilt, literally rebuilt. But it also has a secondary meaning to it, pointing to that the body of Christ will work in the kingdom and serve in the kingdom in such a way as the new Jerusalem will be prepared and one day coming down out of heaven from God for for all of us. And, And so what really brings the ancient ruins and devastations, when you think about it, sin does that. See, that's just the byproduct of sin. Church, what does sin do to us? It destroys us, it corrodes us, it corrupts us. It leads us farther and farther and farther away from life. That's what it does. It promises the world. It promises lasting joy, never delivers. And it tricks us. That's why the Bible speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. It lies to us, we buy the lie, but it just leads us further and further and further into destruction. Yet what verse four is, is the gospel right in the middle of the Old Testament. I think sometimes we read the Old Testament and think, man, God has ticked off in the Old Testament. You know, he's just so mad. And, you know, there's no grace in the Old Testament. That's not actually true. What you have here is a picture of God's grace. It's not sin that has the last word. It's the grace of God that has the last word. That's what verse four is telling us because what, what is being told is, is we're gonna build up the ancient ruins, right? The, the former devastations are going to be repaired and raised up. That's what he's talking about and he's going to use you and me to do it. See, we are the joy spreaders as we, as we walk among the ruined cities of this world. We're the, we're the joy givers as we move in and out of the, of, the, of the ruined cities, of the former devastations. And isn't that a great description of the world that we live in? Just kind of devastation all around. But see, we, we're, we're called to be joy facilitators, to live a life of joy because, because Jesus has come. Let, let, me, let me show you how I know this. Look at verse six. Don't take my word for it. Take the words word for it, uh, just read it. Um, he says this, but you shall be called priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Now, who does that verse refer to? Is that verse talking to me? Is that verse describing me? No, that verse is describing you. You're all priests, you are ministers of God, you're ministers of joy. And let's just kind of think about that for a minute. Think about what a priest does. A priest is a a go-between, if you will. That's what a priest does. He's a go-between. What a priest does is he goes between God and people. And and so a priest will talk to God on behalf of the people. and, And then a priest will talk to the people on behalf of God. So let's kind of break it down. Let's think about that first one. We we talk to God on behalf of people. What is that called? That's called intercessory prayer. We go to we go to God on behalf of someone over here who doesn't know him, who doesn't know that he's come, who doesn't know that he loves them, that he died for them. So what we do is we go to God on their behalf and we ask God to work in their heart to soften their heart, to speak to their heart, to reveal his glory to them. And we pray for our family members and our friends and our coworkers who who really don't know Jesus because we want them to come to know the joy of, of knowing him. And church, what I know is this, when you and I pray, God works. When you and I are praying, God moves. God brings harvest. I was reading about this college student her name was her her name is puti Sok, and uh she's not she was not a christian but she had some christian friends and and she made it really clear to them that you need to leave me alone don't try to convert me and certainly don't pray for me is what she told them because she claimed to be a cambodia a cambodian buddhist now, she really wasn't a Buddhist, she was really an atheist in, in practicality, uh, but she claimed Buddhism because her parents were Buddhist, and, and she claimed to be a Cambodian Buddhist, even though she was born in Long Beach, California, and she grew up in Dallas, Texas. Well, so that's that's another story, but she just assumed the identity, the, you know, kind of the religious identity of her parents. Of her parents so she started college and and community and friendships were really important to her so she made a lot of friends she developed some community and many of her friends were christians and uh so she had a good first year of college then sophomore year she started to hit a wall she started to struggle and uh, she just started feeling empty with her life she started feeling like her life was meaningless That her life wasn't going anywhere that something was missing and she the atheist the atheist buddhist uh if you will she started praying and she said, God, if you're real, would you speak to me? Would you show me yourself? So she just started praying that. Not long after she was praying that, she went into the student ministry building at the University of Texas, where a lot of her friends went to worship and for Bible study. She walked in the building and she saw a prayer room And this prayer room was a room just set aside for students to go in and pray. So she goes in the prayer room, and she notices in the prayer room this huge bowl with all of these white sheets of paper inside the bowl. So she starts looking through these little pieces of paper and their prayer requests on these pieces of paper. And she's starting to look through them, and she sees her name mentioned several times on different sheets of paper. And her mind goes back immediately to vehemently requesting that her friends not try to convert her and not pray for her. And she realizes, as she puts two and two together, that her friends have been regularly and faithfully and consistently praying for her. And she burst out in tears as she realized what God was doing in her life. She attended a student worship service the next day. God asked her for a response. She committed her life to Christ. And then she became an evangelist to the student body at the University of Texas. And then she began studying for preparation for full time ministry. Now, church, I share that with you to say that's what we're called to be and to do to be priests, to go to God on behalf of the pooty socks in our life. And what happens is when we do that, we build up the ancient ruins. We raise up the former devastations. We bring new life and restoration. Can I just ask a simple question? Who is it that you're praying for right now? Who is it in your life that is far from God and who needs him more than anything? You need to be praying and you need to be inviting. All right, so that's the first part of that. We talk to God on behalf of people, but we also talk to people on behalf of God. This is part of the mission that God has given to us and uh, and so as priests and as ministers, this is what we do. We we have conversations. We we steer conversations. We ask questions so that we can share the gospel, share our story of how Christ has transformed us. I was reading reading a story about this uh, this guy named Paul Borthwick, who's kind of a I don't know. He's kind of a missions guru. He's he's all about missions, and so he writes about missions and stuff. So he's living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he walks into McDonald's and he recognizes the guy behind the counter his name is Peter and Peter is a member of their young adult ministry at Paul's church and he's like man what are you doing here and what are you doing behind the counter at McDonald's because you see uh, Peter had just graduated from Harvard University he just finished graduating with a graduate degree and he's working at McDonald's and so Peter tells him look hey uh, let, why don't we get coffee? I'll be on break in five minutes. So they sat down. They started talking. So Paul asked him, "Hey, well, what are you doing at McDonald's?" He's like, "Well, when I graduated, I couldn't find a job, and he said I had bills to pay, so I decided to work here at McDonald's." And and, uh, and and so then Paul looked at him and said, "Man, I'm so sorry." He said, "Don't apologize." He said, "God has me here. This is where God wants me to be." He said, "I can do more mission work here than I can do overseas anywhere." He said, on my shift, there's a a Buddhist from Sri Lanka, there's a Muslim from Lebanon, there's a a Hindu lady from India, and there's a fellow Christian from El Salvador. All on my shift. He said, I could could do more evangelizing and joy spreading than, than I ever could overseas. Now church, do you realize everywhere you go, every place that you go, every time that you go, you're an ambassador for Christ? You are salt and light you're a messenger you realize you are a joy spreader and you think oh well we you know we'll let the pastors do that no as pastors we're administers our job is to equip you to be the ministers and so that's what we're called to be and to do now some of you push back because i I know what you're thinking you're thinking scott i just get so afraid that somebody's going to ask me a question that i can't answer What I would say to you is this, if somebody ever asks you a question that you can't answer about the Christian faith, say, that's a really good question. Let me do a little bit of research and I'll get back with you. It works every time. And I encourage you to do that. If you need to, call one of your pastors. We'll we'll help you, we'll we'll figure it out together. I've said that so many times, church. I, I don't know every answer to every question people ask, but I can find it. Just give me five minutes, I'll find it. And, um, and so I, that's just what God has called us to be and to do, to be joy spreaders. In a world full of joylessness, that's what he's called us to be and to do. Last one, let me bottom line it for you. The bottom line is this, we are God's beloved. We are the beloved of God. As Adam said a little bit earlier, we are children of God, known and loved by him sons and daughters of God. Ultimately, joy comes from gratitude when you realize what God has done for you. That's where it comes from. When you realize that Jesus was born for you, that he lived for you, that he died for you, and he rose for you. And why did he do that? did something require him to do that like some law in the universe that just kind of okay i'll do it you know nobody else will do it so i'll do it No, it wasn't that at all he did it because he loved us he was he's perfect and just there's nothing he had to do for us we're the ones who rebelled against him and so out of love he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and this is where some of you kind of push back with me and you say, but, but Scott, you just don't understand. I've done X, Y, and Z and God could never love me because I did X, Y, and Z. And what I say is, church, we've all done X, Y, and Z and he loves every single one of us. We're all in the same boat. Your X, Y, and Z is not very any different from my X, Y, and Z because we're all sinners and we're loved by God. And and this is what we want more than anything else. We want someone to see us for who we really are where we don't have to pretend and they love us anyway. And you know who that is? That's Jesus Christ. He loves you. His love for you is not based on your performance. He loves you just because you are valuable and a person of worth in his eyes. You are an image bearer. he loved you and gave himself for you so so when he came what 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 did he do what specifically what did he do well he did a couple things he bore our guilt and shame like he he took our guilt and shame upon himself and carried it and dealt with it you know um i I, you know i hopefully most of you've read the book of isaiah it's it's a It's an amazing book quite honestly it's not an easy book i'll be honest with you um there are treasures in this book that are uh just amazing but it's it's 66 chapters pretty long book pretty challenging book and uh what's what makes it challenging i think is you start reading the first half of it and it starts giving you these pictures of this great and awesome king so you start getting these verses about this coming king. He's going to be mighty. He's going to reign, you know, on the throne of David and everything. And and you see, like one example, you get a Polaroid shot, you know, and and. Uh, In chapter nine, where it says, for unto us a child is born and the government shall be on his shoulder. So it starts predicting this coming of the king and he's mighty, powerful. He's gonna reign in justice and righteousness. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. You see it in the first half of Isaiah. But then about chapter 40, the whole book shifts and you see this other character that the the second half starts talking about. And this other character is coming in meekness and in humility and uh, just just a person who's going to suffer and a person that there's nothing naturally attractive about them that would attract us to this person just just kind of a normal person and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and you get to Isaiah 53 and you realize this person is going to be despised and rejected that this person's going to suffer and die and then you realize that they are one and the same person. That this glorious almighty king is going to come in weakness and he's going to suffer and die for you and for me. This mighty king is going to be the sacrificial lamb. Now, that's the storyline of Isaiah. It's an interesting storyline. You'll you will never find that storyline where a king willingly, lovingly, voluntarily gives his life for his people. You're not going to find it in any other religion. You will not find it in literature. And you certainly are not going to find it in history. But you find it in the gospel. Why? Because he loves you. And he loves me. And so, let me show you verses two and three again, because I wanna call your attention to this. Uh, he, this. This king, this Messiah who comes, verses two and three, says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, remember we looked at this a little bit earlier, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. See that word instead? The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So what you see is the words instead, instead, instead. What do we deserve? Ashes. What do we get? A beautiful headdress. What, what, what do we deserve? Mourning. What do we get? The oil of gladness. What, what, what do we deserve? A faint spirit, a weak spirit, a crushed spirit. What, what do we get in return? A garment of praise. You see this word instead and instead and instead. And what that really is? is really the word grace. That's what it is. That our Savior got what we deserved instead of us. You see it again in verse seven. He doubles down on this. Look at verse seven. Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion. A double portion of what? Joy. Joy, that's what it's gonna be. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have what? Everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. Do you know how long everlasting is? It's a long time. Everlasting joy. So we're the ones who sinned against God. We're the ones who rebelled against God. We're the ones who stiffed arm God. We're the ones who said no to God. We're the ones who deserve shame and dishonor and mourning. But instead of us receiving it, who receives it? our substitute. See, what should have gone to us went to him. So instead of ashes, we get the beautiful headdress. What was Jesus' headdress? Crown of thorns. We got the wedding garments, beautiful. What garments did Jesus get? A bloody robe. You see substitution? he carried our guilt and shame our guilt and shame and punishment goes to him and then there's even more good news you see this in verse verse 10 something else goes to us he says this i will greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall exult in my god for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He's using metaphors to try to convey the reality of what God has done for us. And what has happened is our guilt and shame goes to Jesus and his righteousness goes to us. As Christians, we believe in what is called double imputation. Our penalty goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to us. So that it's not just that our sins are covered, it's now where God sees us, not as sinners anymore, but as righteous in him. That's what he sees when he sees us. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? And that's what he's talking about in the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. You know, in my, I was goofing around on Facebook and um, on fa- in my Facebook feed, there are all these men's clothing companies being advertised there. They must think I'm a bad dresser or something. Um, they must know something I don't know or whatever. And and so you can, you can kind of fill out this profile. It actually sounds pretty cool. You fill out this profile, you give them all your sizes and everything and your your styles, and then they'll send you um, a kit of clothes. So just an outfit, you know what I mean? Like they'll just send it to you and you can try it on, wear it, and, and you know, look really good according to them. So, um, and I was thinking, you know what? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Like payment was made and then I get the robes of righteousness given to me because of Jesus. I get the garments of salvation. I get to put them on. And when the father sees me, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a son. He sees a daughter, known and loved by God. Church, that's our joy today. How do you get it? It's really simple. You repent and you believe. You just turn away from your sin. Because sin is death. Sin is destruction. It's devastation. You just turn away from that and you turn to life. And you believe. And God honors faith. God moves in faith. So when we put our trust in him, that's what he does. is He saves us, forgives us, changes us, And that joy fills us. And so do you know the joy of your salvation today? Have you experienced the robes of righteousness? You can. You can do that today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence with praise and thanksgiving. We come before you grateful for the hope that we have and so grateful for the joy of all that you have done for us. You take away our mourning, you take away our grief, you take away our sorrow, you take away our devastations, you take away our sins. That what sin is torn down, your grace can restore. God, would you just wrap us today? Would you just clothe us with the joy of salvation? God, would you fill us with hope and joy, your gifts given to us, the greatest gifts that the world can't touch, the world can't take them away. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people do what matters is what you say and what you did that's all that matters and that is the source of our joy so god we we just come and ask that you would renew us that you would birth within us this great joy for your glory and for our good and all of god's people said amen